This is the Dialogue Journal podcast series. Hello, welcome to another Dialogue podcast. This time we're pleased to present Dr. Philip Barlow, author of the classic work Mormons in the Bible, the place of the Latter-day Saints in American religion. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, a member of the Board of Directors of Dialogue Foundation, the publishers of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. If you enjoy these podcasts, we hope you will consider supporting us by subscribing to the journal and, if you're able, by making a tax-deductible contribution to Dialogue Foundation. You can subscribe or contribute online by going to dialoguejournal.com. This presentation was given to the Orange County section of the Miller-Eccles Study Group on February 21, 2014. Following Dr. Barlow's prepared remarks, there is some interesting discussion in the Q&A portion. At this point, I'll shift over to the session recording. Now I'd like to take a moment just to introduce uh, our speaker, Dr. Barlow. He is the Leonard Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture at Utah State University, someone I consider to be a good friend. He received his Master's in Theological Studies and his Doctorate of Theology from Harvard Divinity School. And while teaching Institute of the Boston area, a little known fact, he served as a counselor in the bishopric with Mitt Romney. He is the author of, uh, among other things, Mormons and the Bible, The Place of the Latter-day Saints in American Religion. It was recently republished with a new introduction by Oxford University Press. A couple of little snippets from reviews will give you an idea of how well this is regarded, not just in the Mormon community, but in the in the community at large. These are both reviews from non-Mormon publications. The American Historical Review says, one of the most interesting books I have read on Mormonism in recent years. This is a persuasive and well-written book that offers a fresh approach to understanding the saints within a larger context of American religion. And the Journal of the West says, an important seminal work among the five or six most significant works examining Mormonism's rich and varied past to appear over the course of the past 20 years. And Phil is the past president of the Mormon History Association. He served on the board of directors of Dialogue Foundation. From Dr. Barlow. It's delightful to be uh, with you in your very beautiful area. I won't go on about my um, sense of envy in repeatedly going outdoors and unconsciously bracing myself for Cache Valley air and almost stumbling over with the ease of uh, walking out. So I hope it's not making you all soft as opposed to our pioneering <laughs> people. Um, I was talking at Claremont last night, as your speakers here are accustomed to do often enough, I take it, and um, I spoke there about several meanings of the concept of restoration. I've had the feeling recently, uh, in the last couple of years, that I've suffered from an impoverished view of restoration and its meanings. Um, and I even came to the conclusion between the first edition of Mormons in the Bible and the recently published edition that 
the most, uh, the, the parts of that book that I was least satisfied with were the first two chapters on Joseph Smith and his relationship with the Bible because I concluded that I had too scrawny of a view of what the Restoration even was and what the meaning of that term was as Joseph Smith enacted it. But also I ultimately concluded that the Joseph Smith that we carry around in our heads is too small. And I think that's a very large claim because Joseph's enemies made him big and monstrous, uh, eventually costing him his life. And Mormon folks who were devoted to him um, make him very grand and sometimes grandiose. And so it's a very big thing to say, or surprising thing for me to conclude, that the Joseph Smith I and we carry around in our heads is too small in the sense that the scope of what he was trying to do is bigger than we typically comprehend. I take it most folks, I'm going to assume that most folks in the room are are Latter-day Saints, um, and presumably you vary in what that means a little bit and your understandings of it, and maybe a few of you aren't, but I'm going to speak as though I am speaking to fellow Latter-day Saints since I am one, so if you're not a Latter-day Saint or are struggling with that, as happens and maybe even should happen sometimes that we ask authentic person <coughs> questions and pray and talk our way through to um, spiritual integrity, then uh, don't think I'm being uh, narrow and presumptuous. I'm just going, that'll be my assumption, but as we talk back and forth, I'd love to hear comments or observations from um, any of you who are or are not LDS. Um, Joseph Smith had a vision. Whether or not you're a believing Latter-day Saint, he had a vision. Whether you believe there's a God or not, or that, th or that this prophet encountered it, he had a vision because we can trace it out and we can articulate it. But as I said with the word restoration, I'm not sure we've fully articulated it yet. I think we have a lot more unpacking to do about what this thing meant. And some of the DNA of this vision is captured in his relationship with the Bible. It's a very complex relationship and I'm very clear that I'm not perfectly clear about it all. Indeed, I've come to think that there's so much going on with Joseph Smith that the prophet, when best seen, is partly unseen if we're under the impression that we're really seeing all the dimensions and what it was all about, I think we're seeing more poorly than if we're a little more humble about it and recognize, well, there's a lot going on here. And I think that's true, again, whether you happen to be Latter-day Saints or not. So I think that the DNA of all of that bigness is is shows up in his dealings with the Bible somewhat. So when I was writing my doctoral dissertation about Mormons and the Bible and was teaching institute back in Boston for the church, my partner, Alan Parrish, uh, back in Boston, 
asked what I was writing on, and I said, Mormons in the Bible, and he said, ooh, that will be a great bestseller, I'm sure. Lovingly and sarcastically, because it's not polygamy, and it's not racy temple stuff and esoteric theology about the afterlife. It sounded a little mundane to him. But like I'm always trying to argue to my undergraduate students, when they talk to me, I'm getting my general courses out of the way. I try to get them to see they've got that just backwards. They need to invert their notions that those general courses that the faculty requires of them to graduate are precisely um, the profound ones that we agree that everybody needs um, exposure to, to build a decent critical mind and enough information and ways, understanding of ways to think that you need to take those very, very seriously. And I think we need to think through Joseph Smith's relation to the Bible because it has contagion to every other aspect of Mormonism and the Restoration. We wouldn't think in the categories we do. Joseph wouldn't have thought in the categories he does. The Book of Mormon would unravel Mormon history as we know it would unravel without this relationship that is, is kind of tricky to get at. So we can't hope to um, cover too much of that tonight. So I'm just going to sample a few threads of different relations with us to the Bible to sort of plow our field and stir up a little bit so that we might ask, not dirt, dirt, soil, uh, productive soil, so that we might um, converse and make metaphors. Okay, this is uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, the healing of a leper story as it shows up in parallel columns. If you ever want to understand the Gospels in a comparative way, you can't do that very well by flipping back and forth. You need to invent a mechanism like this, and they publish books of parallel columns of the Gospels. So I recommend that to you if you'd ever like to um, probe more deeply into the Gospels. And... The reason we don't have John here is because John is structured very differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke that have some sort of closer um, relationship with each other. That they're called the synoptic gospels. And the reigning scholarship's consensus is that Matthew and Luke had before them, as one of their sources, at least some version of the Gospel of Mark, which was the earliest gospel written as best as can be sorted through in the mid-60s, about a generation after Jesus died. And the reason I'm showing you this is to get us to think together about the sources with which the Gospels were put together. What did Mark, where did Mark get his information? Where did Luke get his information? And um, then I want us to think about that with some stuff going on with Joseph and the Bible. So just think with me on this slide a little bit. Where did Matthew, Mark, and Luke get their material from in order to write? And um, so this is the account of the healing of a leper. Um, Matthew chapter 8 happens, cleverly enough, after Matthew chapter 7. And Matthew chapter 7, as you remember, is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So this account starts immediately after 
um, Jesus has um, done the Sermon on the Mount as Matthew presents it, so when he came down from the mountain. Mark just has it in a series of other things he's telling about Jesus, so there's no Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Mark, so he's not going to come down from the Mount. And Luke doesn't have a Sermon on the Mount either. Luke has a Sermon on the Plain, which is about half as long or less than the Sermon on the Mount, the way that Matthew has it cast. And the stuff that's in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 is, is truncated in Luke and then spread elsewhere in other stories in Luke. The sayings that are in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount show up in other little episodes in Luke. What does that mean about structure? What does that mean about the memory of Jesus? What does that mean about the material that they were, that these writers had handed down to them in the 60s, 70s, and 80s? So again, where did they get their sources? So if you study the Gospels in parallel like this all through the Gospels, and you see that Hmm, the Gospel of John doesn't have a manger scene and no shepherds and neither does Mark, but Luke and Matthew do, but the stories don't comport in every respect. Again, that generates questions about, huh, how did you patch this together? We take it to be inspired in some sense, but we can't have that override us not being thoughtful about what we see there and why they're different. In this example, some scholars noticed along the way, actually scholars um, even in medieval times and over the centuries have noticed some of these traits but not had ways to explain it. They noticed that in a passage like this, the stories are similar but not identical as I just suggested about the context of where it came from. But the sayings of Jesus are virtually identical in all three accounts. There's, in the Greek New Testament, there's no quotation marks, but the stuff that we would put in quotation marks is almost identical, but the stories and the context around the words of Jesus are a little bit fluid. So, and Jesus said to him in verse 4 of chapter 8 of Matthew, see that you say nothing to anyone but go show yourself to the priest and offer the that Moses commanded for a proof to the people. In Mark's version, that's prefaced with verse 43 of Mark chapter 1, and he sternly charged him and sent him away at once. So that, that little bit of urging from Jesus isn't in Matthew, and in Luke he charged him, but in Mark it's, it's emphasized he sternly charged him. Those are microscopic things you're supposed to be asking. Not your first question is who cares, but pretty soon you're supposed to be asking who cares. But it would help if you don't ask so what yet until you study the Gospels and start to see patterns. And then notice that these things that look small and incidental are actually patterned. One of the Gospel writers, if feed thousand people miraculously in another Gospel writer, the miraculousness of it will be heightened. He will, he will um, have fed 5,000 people. And we can see patterned things like that. 
So what does it mean that the sayings of Jesus are the same, but the stories around the sayings are fluid? How would we explain something like that? Some German scholars, where biblical, modern biblicism was um, in its ranks um, in the 19th century, some German scholars hypothesized the reason for that must be that these three gospel writers had one of their sources as a saying source, that is, a source that was handed down without the stories, but just with Jesus' sayings. Right? Like Confucius say, mm-hmm, Jesus said, mm-hmm. And then, about the same time that the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the mid-20th century, we found a cache of documents that are at least as valuable for scholarship in Upper um, Egypt. And it's uh, at a place of a site called Nag Hammadi, and so they're called the Nag Hammadi Library or Manuscripts. And there we found a gospel that, that seemed to verify the German scholar's hypothesis. It's called the Gospel of Thomas. There are a couple of Gospels of Thomas, and one is an infancy Gospel of Thomas, and it's all about filling in everything you wanted to know about Jesus when he was young. So Jesus is out playing with his friends, and one of them ticks him off, and so he turns him into a mud pie. So super baby, apocryphal Jesus with lots of powers like that, and that doesn't go over too well with the neighborhood parents, and so some of the fathers come and talk to Joseph, and okay, he turns him back into a kid. And so, so in some ways there's a reason why there's four canonized Gospels. But this other Gospel of Thomas is just a Jesus said, Jesus said, 114 sayings, and many scholars have reason to think that there's a historical core there to some of these sayings that go back to the historic Jesus, but that are not in the canonized Gospels, although some of the sayings are. So the point is that we've got these little verbal lumps, and they may have come from the saying source collection. Stories got remembered, and they were fluid and told from those who were with Jesus, the communities and they pass them down. Uh, Phil, is that that um, hypothesized document of early sayings? Is that what we sometimes call the Q source? It is not. It's a sayings source. The Q source is a <laughs> hypothesis about some material that Matthew and Luke seem to have used and that Mark did not use. So that's Q because that's comes from a Jew, German source, since German scholars were doing this Kella, uh, which means, oh, thank you, I, um, my German is um, somewhat more than modest, um, but it means source, and so it's a hypothesized source that, again, seems persuasive to most scholars that it existed, but we don't have it. And we don't have this saying source, we just have something like it, like, oh, they had a document like we had hypothesized. How many, how many years approximately after Mark do the scholars think that Matthew and uh, Luke were written? Matthew, and, if Mark was written maybe in the mid-60s to 70, then um, Matthew and Mark seem to be in the 70s or 80s, and John seems to be in the 90s or even somewhere around the year 100. 
So all of these four Gospels are anonymous. None of them, if you were reading the original manuscripts or the best reconstruction of the original manuscripts that we have, none of them would say, I, Matthew, am now writing you this. It would just say, Mark on meaning according to Mark, the gospel according to Mark, which comes down to us by tradition, but not anything internal in the gospel that tells us who the author is. And, and your earliest original is maybe third century that we have little bits of it? Uh, no, the, we actually have a little fragment of the gospel of John that's about that big that goes back to dating it uh, to around the year 120 or 125, which is in within just a few decades of when it was purportedly written. But you're right, as far as getting to full New Testament texts, they start to be 3rd and 4th century things. Good. Any others? Okay. Okay, here's another... Um, version. We'll do this one a little bit more quickly, but this is Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And the point, some of you would have heard of this and some of you may not have. Oh, I'm standing right in front of you for all this. I'm sorry. We don't need to read the whole thing, so start, the left-hand column is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Is, is that gone dead? And Genesis uh, 2 in the second column is verse 1 through verse 8. What scholars have noticed for a long time is that there seem to be two creation accounts um, in chapter 1 and chapter 2 that don't comport. The order of creation is actually inverted in chapter 2 from what it is in chapter 1. So is this... So in verse 31 in Genesis... Um, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. But the chapter divisions are artificial, so if you, uh, they weren't in the original text, of course, so if you'll just keep reading as though that chapter head break isn't there, thus the heavens and the earth, earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day God finished his work, that they had, that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and rested. And then in verse 4, we've got a scene. Here's where I want you to put a chapter break. We've got a scene between the two accounts. It's either the last verse of the first creation story or the first verse of the second version of the creation story. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush was yet in the field, etc. And then it goes on to a new and different um, creation story. It's not just that the order is different, but in the two accounts, um, one of them uses a different word for God, Elohim all the way through and the other uses Yahweh a different term for God and the vocabulary is different and the way of creation in the first account God is mighty all powerful speaks and it is done in the other one God is involved like a loving craftsman involved and the language is even a little bit different if we were reading 21st century English of Beowulf and 
and the medieval version of Beowulf, the English, would be so different that we'd recognize we've got a half foreign language, and it works like that in Hebrew that you can see that these come from different eras sometime, okay? Vocabulary, theology, angle of vision about creation, names for God, there's a number of reasons in addition to the order of creation. The point being that the scholars started to theorize, and, and all biblical scholars are more or less convinced that there's something to this, that what we call the Genesis story was sewn together, was edited together by a redactor or editor taking in different traditions and making a creation story out of it. It would be like the historical second century figure in, in, church, in uh, Christian history, Tatian, who took the four, four Gospels that were going to be canonized when they were eventually canonized and harmonizing them, turning them all into one Gospel, right? That's what's happened here in Genesis and all through the Pentateuch, all through the first five books of the Old Testament. So again, we can do critical analysis that make us raise questions and help us make intelligent theories about how these things put together. And then, so what? Um, we could generate what are the implications of that as we moved along. And this is called the documentary hypothesis, the hypothesis that several sources informed the construction of some books of the Bible. Actually, scholars have it that there are, and it depends on the scholar, but there's four or five different sources that go into the first five books of the Bible, and they have letters that they call them J for the Yahweh source and P for the priestly source. So that's the documentary hypothesis. Now why that's relevant to us in talking about Joseph and his relationship with the Bible Richard Bushman put this seed in my brain a quarter of a century ago when I was writing my dissertation and I thought and worked at it a little bit more and concluded that he was on to something, that the documentary hypothesis was not known in the United States except in a tiny pocket of Greater Boston at Harvard and at Andover Seminary. They were working this, this stuff, but the scholars nationally weren't, and the clergy people weren't. But what we have in the Book of Mormon, startlingly, whatever it means, is the first depiction of something like this at work, because Joseph Smith depicts an ancient figure, Mormon, who's a general and a prophet, but also a redactor, also an editor, and instead of deducing it hypothetically, like we had to do here, it's forthright, right? I, I Mormon, I'm about to deliver up the record which I've been making into the sons of my, into the hands of my son Moroni. Verse two: It is many hundreds years, many hundred years after the coming of Christ that I deliver these records into the hands of my son. And now I speak concerning that which I have written in verse 3, after I have made an abridgment from the plates of Nephi. So, as you all know, he's forthrightly gathering some here, abridging some here, ignoring these plates here, 
assembling, sometimes going back and seeing ancient plates, handing them down, getting them lost, um, eager to go get them from Laban, um, Nephi was back in the day. So we've got the first showing, the first dramatic depiction of the documentary hypothesis at work in the Book of Mormon, and that's um, notable. It wasn't around, and Joseph certainly wasn't a biblical scholar in that sense. Any questions about that? I've had a critic or two of the book give otherwise complimentary reviews of Mormons in the Bible, but pick out that thread and, and say that sounds anachronistic. Um, one of my favorite scholars, the great scholar of the Bible in America named Mark Noel at Notre Dame, said it was anachronistic, but that's exactly the point. It's anachronistic. It's out of out of sequence in order to explain it by ordinary means. I mean, Mr. Riggs, you understand what I'm suggesting here? Any questions? Okay. So a couple of other characteristics about um, Joseph's use of the Bible. One is, as the title of this slide suggests, vocabulary chunks. Joseph used the Bible, or sometimes I wonder if he had some sort of selective photographic memory, or it was all inspiration, but it, it still worked one way rather than another. It had traits the way it came out, right? And one of the traits is that Joseph uses little biblical phrases from all over the Bible, from the book of Revelation, from Matthew, from Isaiah, from the Psalms, from the book of James. And he takes little phrases of three or five or eight or ten words as one trait, and he recasts them into a coherent narrative when he's translating the Book of Mormon. So, my word shall not pass away is from Matthew 24 and 35. Uh, the Lord, in 2 Nephi 9 and 16, the Lord has spoken it and his eternal word which cannot pass away. Is that just an accident because God's word is eternal? Sure, it could be. But the pattern is way too entrenched to dismiss it like that. So this is just one verse and an example, and we've traced where it's coming from in the Bible. Matthew 24, Revelations 22 is parallel to that section. Matthew 25, Revelations 20, Matthew up here, and John here, that your joy may be full, as it's echoed in the Book of Mormon. Okay, so that's a strange or interesting trait that we could hypothesize about before we get to the so what. But, um, please. Are these tables in your book? This particular example is in my book. Although I, got, I took this particular um, one from Blake Ostler, so, so I should give him credit for that. But the pattern is around and about in the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants. The Doctrine and Covenants which is less mysterious than this, I suppose, or less striking, but the Doctrine and Covenants has about averages about three biblical phrases of, of three or more words not counting prepositions for every two verses through the whole, all of the sections. So it's a very striking trait if you're focused on it. Bible 
in little verbal chunks functioned as part of the vocabulary of Joseph. And that's not just saying he knew the Bible. It's these little chunk things. It's the trait I want you to pay attention to. Questions about that? Okay. In Joseph Smith, we had the impulse to restore, and you and I have drunk from that impulse. We talk about the restoration, as I was suggesting when I began, but the restoration um, has multiple meanings. So here's an interesting example for us to think about. In John, the opening of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and you're all familiar with that, but it's kind of strange so that we can make the mistake of getting too familiar with this. Like, what the heck does that mean to talk like that? And uh, the Greek New Testament word behind the word, word, in John 1 and 1, is in the beginning was the logos. That's the New Testament koine or common Greek word. Logos is um, one of those rich words that means a whole lot. Our word logic comes from it. But it can mean word or sentence or speech or expression or reason or mind. Okay, it's all that talk, think stuff. In the beginning was the word, the logos. It almost helps if you banish word and use that Greek word so that you can say maybe see that he may be some, saying something else than just word. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. In other words, incarnated in Christ was the expression of God, the mind of God, the reason of God, the the word of God in a not a noun and verbs word necessarily, but an incarnated expression of God. But Joseph changes it in what we call the Joseph Smith translation to, in the beginning was the gospel preached through the Son, and the gospel was the word, and not the logos was the word, or Christ was the word, but the gospel was the word, and the word was with the Son, that is, the gospel was with the Son, and the Son was with God, and the Son was of God. So there's a whole bit of a lot of theologizing and demystifying of this strange, in the beginning was the word stuff, to mean something else. And maybe it was a revelation to Joseph, and it should mean something else. But we do know from the original manuscripts of the Joseph Smith translation that Joseph experimented a lot. So we can see on the, the Bible, King James Bible that he worked from, and the notes that were taken, that he would sometimes make a change, and then sometimes he would cross out his change and make a different change, and sometimes he would change the change that had been changed, and sometimes he would do all that and say, yeah, and go back to the original. So there's clearly a you must study it out in your mind thing and pray about it, experiment. Sometimes there seems it seems to be a kind of a commentary or a targum on the text. So it gets more one step more interesting in that Mormonism hasn't done very much serious professional level biblical scholarship. We're, we're reaching a new era 
where we're sending some people out to be get a serious education and do more serious things um, and some of them are getting jobs or advanced in their doctoral programs. Um, some scholars um, mostly housed at Brigham Young University have been working on a new commentary on the New Testament and are those any volumes first out? Has anybody seen them or heard of them? There's one on Kindle on Revelation. One out? Okay, so they're coming out. Uh, they've been work, at work on it for a long time, seven or nine years or some such. The way that this new New Testament um, commentary is going to look is that on a page there will be a new translation, a fresh translation by the scholar from the Greek. And then in parallel column, like we saw with Matthew and Mark, there will be the King James, since that's what most Latter-day Saints are accustomed to. And then on the bottom half of the page, there will be commentary, trying to analyze the text and make it more clear to readers. Okay, that's not an original format with them, but that's how it will look. It's not clear that this bottom rendition of John 1 and 1 is the way that the commentary on the Gospel of John will work, but the scholar who was originally working on this gave it this rendition and argues that the Greek will hold up under this. Um, in the beginning, or in the ruling council, instead of in the beginning, it's ruling council. The word would be some form of the Greek word arche, and arche, like archetypical and archetype, can mean first, as in in the beginning, or first, as in chiefest, highest. And so here he's taken it to ruling instead of beginning. In the ruling council was not a word, but the spokesman, Lagos is that rich word, right? And the spokesman was among the gods. We got Mormon theology going here with plurality of gods. And the spokesman was himself a god. That would be exceedingly unconventional and definitely translated through the lens of a Mormon mind and would be contested by everybody but Mormons, I'm sure. I myself certainly have questions about its legitimacy, but I just want you to see how it can work. And this impulse to render it that way is surely informed because the scholar has restoration type one in his mind, and that is everything that Joseph is doing is a restoration of the way once something once was that he's now restoring to perfection. But I want us to, even though we don't have time to redo the restoration lecture, I want you to at least hear a couple of other things that restoration can mean. So as Joseph enacted it, as I see it, some of the restoration was a retrieval of that which once was allegedly historically there and lost through apostasy and brought back. That's restoration one, and that's what all Mormons carry around in their heads is what's going on with the restoration. But a second thing that's going on with Joseph's restoration is not retrieving that which once was historically, but fixing that which was broken or that which is fragmented. And so 
I think for time we probably have to leave it there, but an example would be family. The family in Joseph Smith's time in the new American Republic, the new experimental United States. Divorces were starting to go up in the face of democracy and the extended generational families were starting to shrink towards the nuclear family. And Emerson, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson lamented this and Tocqueville, who, a brilliant Frenchman who came and analyzed the new fascinating American democracy just as Joseph Smith was in the height of his prophetic career published a famous book to, that's famous to all American historians called Democracy in America and he went on at some length about the amnesia and he was an admirer of democracy but he was talking about the amnesia that Americans, that democracy was bringing about that people wouldn't remember their ancestors and wouldn't remember their descendants and because of the, the vastness of the country, freedom in democracy often meant we don't like you here and Hutchison and Roger Williams so we're going to cast you down to the sewer of New England and put you down in Rhode Island and then for the rest of the 19th century we want to get you to move west and away from our cities and civilizations. Freedom in other words often meant the freedom to move on and set up your own situation. So, so the family was starting to fragment and it's continued to in that trajectory and if you understand how deep that was going on in America then you can understand in a different context Joseph's inspiration or impulse to work at genealogy and pay attention. The book of Abraham starts with genealogy and my father's and the crazy crazy, outrageously large aspiration of baptizing every human name that we can find from the past. And polygamy, Richard Bushman is probably oversimplifying, but nevertheless penetrating with his insight that Joseph lusted not so much after women, but after kin, family and association. Patriarchs, family thing and patriarchs when they give you a patriarchal blessing assign you a new name from an Israelite tribe everything's about family binding sealing powers chaining together eternal relationship that's what Joseph is all about and it helps to understand the context that same impulse is shown here again to restore in just the sense of bringing back that which once was but Joseph also meant to restore that which is broken. He also meant by the concept of restoration to complete that which is partial. So you remember that he also talked in scripture about, we have the phrase more than once in the Doctrine and Covenants, that the Lord is bringing forth something that is kept that has been kept hid from the foundation of the world. So that's not a retrieval of something that was historically there and brought back. That's, that's more primordial than that, more eternal than that. So there are several other senses, but those are some examples. And this sort of different interpretation of John 1 and 1 can kind of illustrate how we can get carried away with one understanding of the restoration and, and be oblivious to other um, examples of it.
I'll just give you a quick couple samples because I think I better quit pretty soon of um, kinds of changes that Joseph Smith made in the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. Um, I'll just let you, uh, I'll just read that list in case you can't see it quickly and then I'll give you some examples. He made common sense sort of changes like grammatical improvements and modernization of terms. He made some miscellaneous changes that are idiosyncratic and not able, I haven't been able to give them a pattern. He made some common sense theologizing um, things that didn't comport with common sense about God or his own revelations about God, and so he made some changes. He made some interpretive additions that it, he would comment on, and he harmonized some texts that, that seemed to contradict one another, and he emphasized certain restoration themes, and then he had long revealed additions that have no biblical parallel like the Enoch passages in the book of Moses or like the creation um, passages in the book of Moses in the Pearl of Great Price. So grammatical improvements or modernization of terms in the King James Version in this line of Matthew 3 and 4, John the Baptist's meat was locust and wild honey. Joseph changes meat to food, which the word meat meant in uh, the time of King James. Miscellaneous changes, um, who, whoso findeth, findeth a wife, the King James Version reads, findeth a good thing and obtaineth favor of the Lord. Joseph simplifies it and gets rid of the italics which he, was, which he tended to do. Whoso findeth a wife hath obtained favor of the Lord. And the italics, you remember, in the King James Version are what the translators put in there to show us that that isn't in the Greek, but they had to supply it to make it make sense in their translation process. And Joseph and many other um, Protestants of the time were kind of suspicious of those things. So, huh? so, Phil, do you think Joseph didn't think finding a wife was a very good thing? <laughs> oh, um, let's see how he phrased that again here. No, I think he thought finding a wife was a very good thing. <laughs> just, um, just didn't want to make it uh, scriptural, huh? Uh, just streamlining. I don't know why that's not coming back. We'll see go. if there we can... Oh. We'll circle back to that, Morris, if you are not just humoring. When, he, when Joseph does interpretive additions, as he does sometimes in the Book of Mormon and sometimes in the Doctrine of Covenants and often in the Joseph Smith translation, you can feel him do it by the phrase, or in other words. And sometimes that impulse is just shortened to the word, or. So King James reads, And unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. And Joseph adds, or, in other words, it is better to offer the other than to revile again. They come across not like he's supplying something that was once missing, but explaining it more clearly, commenting on it. Harmonization, Matthew chapter 27, differs from Acts chapter 1 in the accounts of how Judas Iscariot took his own life. In Matthew it reads, Judas departed from the temple and went and hanged himself. In Acts it reads, Judas falls headlong, he burst asunder in the mist, and all his bowels gushed out. And in 
Joseph's rendition of Matthew 27. He conflates them and brings it together. Joseph, uh, Judas hanged himself on a tree, but he fell down from that location on the tree, and that's when his bowels gushed out after he died. So there's a number of harmonizations when the book of Exodus has God saying, if such and such is the case, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do to the children of men. Um, Joseph thought, God can't repent, that's a crazy theological idea, so he'll fix that, so there's no God repenting in there. There are certain kinds of doctrinal themes in the Joseph Smith translation, especially the Christianizing of the Old Testament, like the Book of Mormon, Christ is mentioned specifically in thy name a lot, and sometimes miracles are heightened in their depth, like the King James Version of Matthew 3 and 19, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph of Egypt, uh, Joseph, Mary's husband, in Egypt, and Joseph Smith changes dream to vision, so that makes the miraculous dimension once more heightened or deepened. And finally, the last kind of change he makes is these long things that don't have any parallel in the Bible. And we're almost through here. If I'm going on too long, I'm just going to give you one or two more examples. But the visions of Moses and of Enoch and the prophetic mythos in a very original um, prophetic mythos is achieved in these long sections. And by mythos, I don't, re I don't mean legend or something that didn't happen, but something that is meta-historical. It's beyond history. It's beyond our knowing if it's historical or not. And it seems primordial or reaching from the eternities. And um, to communicate what I mean by that, um, I'd like you to... That's just a summary again of those changes. I'd like you to um, pay careful attention as I wrap up here about a definition of what a biblical prophet is. I'm teaching a course right now, a graduate seminar called The Prophetic Voice in American Religious History. And I have my students take the first week and ransack the Bible to try to figure out what a prophet was, not because of what they had heard, but what does the evidence suggest. So there are bands of wandering ecstatic figures um, called prophets mentioned in the Bible. That works and feels a little different than Thomas Monson talking in general conference. Is the book of Job a prophetic book. Job isn't cast as a prophetic figure, but is the book of Job prophetic, and what does that mean? How do mystics differ from prophets? How do Native American shamans differ from prophets? How does Mary Baker Eddy, who founded Christian Science, or Anne Lee, who founded the Shakers as we know them, differ from biblical prophets or from Joseph Smith? A brilliant Jewish conservative Jewish um, philosopher, theologian named Abraham Heschel, maybe you've read something by him, but he's a powerful writer, did a book called The Prophets, and it has the most penetrating analysis of what biblical prophets were like, 
And I'd like you to pay careful attention to um, one thrust that he made here. Uh, with your indulgence, I'll read it. An analysis of prophetic utterances shows that the fundamental experience of the prophet is a fellowship with the feelings of God, sympathy with the divine pathos. If you're going to memorize one phrase from this, I'd like you to hear it as sympathy with the divine pathos. Uh, sympathy not implying pity, but sim means with, and pathy means pathos, feelings, or suffering. Uh, so suffering with, not pity for, but suffering with. The fundamental experience of the prophet is a fellowship with the feelings of God, sympathy with the divine pathos, a, communi a communion with the divine consciousness, which comes about through the prophet's reflection of or participation in the divine pathos. Again, a literal sympathy. The typical prophetic state of mind is one of being taken up into the heart of the divine pathos. The prophet hears God's voice and feels his heart. He tries to impart the pathos of the message. As an imparter, his soul overflows, speaking as he does out of his fullness of his sympathy. Okay, after this vast and best that I know of scholarship about what is the essence of a biblical prophet, he gives that thrust. And in all of religious literature, the Bible, Old and New Testament, the Hindus, Upanishads, the surahs of the Quran, out of all the scriptural accounts I know that are prophetic voices, I don't know any more poignant expression of what Heschel is getting at, the divine mythos that somehow communicates the feelings and mind of God that is more potent than maybe in one way the Book of Mormon. If you read through that lens, you can hear Mormon's words, O ye fair ones, he laments with his blinking around at the smoke that used to be his people think of blinking at the side of the trade towers, world trade towers after September 11th or something. Mormon has this sense of uh, where civilization used to be. Uh, but even more succinct and poignant uh, than that is uh, the famous passage that all Mormons are familiar with where God is in dialogue with Enoch and astonishes Enoch by weeping and Enoch says, how, how is that? Not, why are you weeping, God, but how is it that thou canst weep? How is that possible? You're God. And the expanse knows no limit. Your power knows no limit. You created everything. And God says, this is why. These are my children. This is my creation. And they hate their own blood. Wherefore should not the heavens weep? And then Enoch says, oh, I see what you mean. I will refuse to be comforted. And then his bowels, this used to embarrass me when I was a young boy, his bowels were moved, but his bowels, I can feel that 
sympathy, that compassion right out of the gut. His bowels were moved and he looked upon their wickedness and their misery and wept and stretched forth his arm, arms and his heart swelled wide as eternity and his bowels yearned in compassion and all eternity shook, whatever that would look like, whatever that would mean. But could there be any more powerful passage than communicating Heschel's um, divine pathos um, than that? So um, the point for our immediate topic is there's a sense in which Joseph's relationship with the Bible somehow reaches that level. It's not just that he speaks words for God or reveals um, doctrines, but he's, he's relating to that biblical model if, if I were to assume that some of you were not LDS or didn't believe that Joseph encountered the divine, then, then um, I think we'd have to say that this is true whether we're believers or not, that there's some extraordinary expression, at least, of whatever that thing is that Heschel is sensing in the biblical prophets. And so, so that's a, that's, I, only, I only engaged it that way within the last... Um, six months or so, but I think there's um, a way that I didn't understand in when I wrote the first edition of Mormons in the Bible that Joseph is relating biblically in those terms. So that's enough to impose on you all in one um, swoop, so I'll end there, and if you have stuff about the Bible or Mormons in the Bible or anything that I've said or anything about Joseph in the Bible, it would be good to teach me or share and we bat it around, let's do that. If I've exhausted you, I'll let Morris be the choir director here. <laughs> Thanks. It's okay, Morris, we have a little time. We do. Some in, so. We usually go until about 9 o'clock, so we got about a good 15 minutes for questions. Okay, please. May I ask two questions? Yeah, I'm only clever enough to keep one in the mind at a time, so I'll probably make you repeat it. Uh, first question is in regards to you're referencing of, of John 1 1 and showing this um, new commentary, LDS commentary? The preliminary translation, the so preliminary I don't know if it'll show up or not, but the impulse is documentable. These are LDS scholars that are doing that? Yes. Are they are they familiar with, with how embedded John is with Stoicism? I haven't, it seems I haven't asked them, but some of them are philosophers and they probably know that. Because it seems like the, the wrestling with that text suggests an unfamiliarity. Because from a stoic position, in the beginning was the word, using arche and, and, and logos, that's thoroughgoing stoicism. So I, I don't know. I, just, I was just curious if they deal with Hellenism at all in their wanting to do some type of commentary. Yeah, it's an excellent question. And there are whole scholarly debates about whether John is reflecting um, Stoicism and Hellenism or some other elements, translating some authentic Hebraic elements from earlier too. So there's um, a lively conversation about that. But it's an excellent question, and I we haven't seen um, John published yet, and so I don't know if that will survive or haven't talked to the author the translator, and I'm going to leave his name out of it for right now because there's a little um, shuffling in that commentary, and so I don't know if he certainly went on public record before, but 
um, I'll leave it out for now. So, but I haven't asked him about um, your good question. Thank you. My second question. Oh, sorry, please. In your reference to Heschel and how you're wanting to define the prophetic voice, and your how he's wanting how, to. Well, I'm assuming you're in agreement with it. Well, I think it's a powerful thought. I don't know the Bible like that. It's given me a new thought to probe myself, but I don't know it as my central form of study. I'm a historian, seeing how the Bible is being used and working at that, but I'm not a scholar like okay. Heschel is. So you referenced Heschel, and you also <coughs> referenced the Upanishads, which is the forestration of Hinduism. Given that approach, how what would make that different from a mystic? We'll see how we hammer that through. Sometimes mystics are distinguished from prophets, and all words are negotiations, of course, and um, <coughs> And are meant to their little arm wrestles, uh, sometimes bitter arm wrestles to separate concept A from concept um, B, and so they're sometimes um, fluid. But sometimes a mystic is distinguished from a prophet in that a mystic has an experience of identification with the divine that cannot be communicated. A mystic, um, like a traditional... The question, if you couldn't hear it, is what's the relation of a mystic to a prophet? And some folks make the distinction that a mystic has an experience that identifies with the divine or identifies with God so closely that it's ineffable. It cannot be communicated where a prophet attempts words to communicate his encounter with the divine. So the medieval Christian mystics, for instance, sometimes talk about being godded with God, or often they will use sexual metaphors that are like being interpenetrated with God, not, not in a racy sexual form, but sexuality is the best metaphor for how, how interpenetrating the divine is so that you... Um, lose your identity in the divine or uh, the Hindus might put it either by that sort of mystical experience or ontologically when you die you're an individual drop and you go back to the ocean and, and so there's a loss of individuality but not a loss of something you're, you're just part of the greater whole so I'm not particularly um, committed standing behind that distinction, but scholars sometimes make it. Thank you. My sense, however, is perfect, is that the prophets tend to be engaged with history in a way that mystics are not. Mm -hmm. and they'll make claims and, uh, and interpretations of things. Usually the mystic is much more personal. It's just, it's him and deity and or some divine, and that's it. And the, the prophet's more engaged with a, with a group. Israel communicating a communicable message um, to a group and um, sometimes in under the rubric of restoration for instance harking back to something that needs restored in some sense or harking forward with warning um, so so yeah engaged with history and with people I saw a hand back there please yeah, Joe Bentley, Phil. I have a somewhat more basic question I'd like to get back to you're in the dark back there Joe but I have faith that you're there that this voice is a real incarnation of you I've often wondered something you might shed some light on what about the very first thing Joseph was asked to do after the Book of Mormon and organizing the church was to rewrite the Bible 
Now, do you think the Lord had him do that for his own education primarily, or to benefit the rest of us, or was, or were we a, bysta- a, a, a byproduct of Joseph's education? Were we a byproduct of his education? Oh, was the which was the we the church? Purpose? Yeah, um, he he referred to that project in sometimes erratic ways, differently. Like for instance, he said, "I've I've finished the translation," but then he kept working at it in after years, and he talked about it as this branch of my calling. So he he doesn't, as far as I know, he doesn't. Uh, use words that make it more explicit. God told me to do this, but but this branch of my calling, which implies he felt called to do that, and if the call came from somewhere, then one might suppose that he understood it to come from God, so it may be that your um, premise is accurate. And um, then I don't know that he said more than that about the purpose of it, um, except it's clearly happening under the rubric of this multivalence concept of restoration. But we can get in the sort of trouble that this scholar who may be translating this John 1 and 1 so eagerly to make it be how it once was through Mormon theology. And it seems to me that Joseph's experimental work on the translation of the Bible, let alone some other things he did as part of the restoration, cannot all be reduced to that meaning of restore. And so part of the translation of the Bible is this Enoch stuff and Moses stuff. And some folks think, I'm not sure if I'll even tell you what I think, but I'll just put the thought out for you to weigh it, because sometimes when a certain person assert something, we process it by saying, not thinking through the issue, but Barlow stands there, or Terrell Givens stands there, or something, so I don't want my personal opinion to get in the way. Some people think that um, some of those long additions in the Joseph Smith translation Moses is a part of have a Targumic quality to them, a Targum in... um, Jewish context is not exactly a commentary, but a rendition of a scriptural passage, not the way it necessarily once was, but as it should be, or as it should have been. And there's a lot of what Joseph does that some scholars sort of debate, certainly including um, Kathleen Flake and... Terrell Givens, Terrell um, has said publicly and wouldn't mind me sharing therefore that he um, almost thinks there's a kind of, when I started out this conversation by saying Joseph had a vision, whether you believe in God or not, he had this vista, this thing, this project, this place where it was all going that turns out to be so encompassing that Terrell wonders aloud if there isn't some Ur text, some text in eternity, in heaven, in God's mind, or a wider eternal reality that is the true text. Kind of like Muhammad is told by Gabriel to recite, and he says, say what? I don't, um, I don't know how to do that. And he, the angel repeats, recite, and 
it comes out of him, even almost in midst of his initial protest. And so Joseph doesn't operate quite like that, but if there's an Ur text, it's like there's an ideal true text in heaven or in eternity, and Joseph's trying to um, get it out and translate it, not like a, a scholar, but through some sort of prophetic process that if there's something to our faith, then, then the divine is in it, but it doesn't, it, Joseph has his own fingerprint as a prophet, his own mode and, and his own byproducts. Um, just like in the history of the prophetic voice, not all the products and processes seem to work the same. So since he didn't say it anywhere directly, I think that's for Joseph Bentley and others to to deduce where does this take us or how are, how are to, we to respond to this revelation that's been plopped here. But, but, it, but I think we can only do that obliquely by thinking, praying, talking it through rather than finding a historical record where Joseph said this is what it's for. Unless anybody here, Arben, somebody may know words of Joseph that I don't yet. There's a lot coming out through the Joseph Smith Papers Project and we're going to have to and I'm going to come your way in just one sec, Armin. We're going to have to get a grip on all of his words in a way that we don't yet. And I've argued before that we need some humility, as I said at the beginning, of how clearly we think we see Joseph because there's a lot of stuff that Joseph said that we don't have. There's quite a number of revelations. He used to complain that they're snatched out from under me as soon as I write them and the ink isn't dry yet. And there are revelations out there that we don't have. There are some words and revelations that we're discovering in the process of the Joseph Smith Papers Project. And we only have the words to a portion of Joseph Smith's sermons. We have references Joseph spoke here on this day or his scribes put it in first person, I, I spoke to this congregation on this subject, but then we don't have an awful lot of those sermons, maybe the majority of those sermons. And we know enough patterns of Joseph's thought that we think we can see a lot, and that there's doubtless um, some truth to that. But it's also the case that some of the theologies that Mormons are committed to like we could also deduce or, or also find in ancient Stoicism uh, that matter can't be created or destroyed, for instance. We only have that as just sort of an incidental thing. He's walking with a Methodist minister one day and makes a comment, and there happens to be a person uh, within earshot to write that down, and that's the only reason we have a snippet like that, and there's a number of things like that, and therefore the missing sermons and missing revelations may have um, more stuff in given the hyper warp drive that Joseph's career was on um, from the 1820s to 1844. It's like, it's like looking up at the clouds and fast camera motion and they're changing. So it's pretty rapid. Sorry, Armin, thanks for your patience. Well, I'm really interested in learning more about, I can say, may, maybe reviewing more since I did read the original book some time back. Uh, anyway, about the involvement of uh, of Joseph Smith himself, of course, 
in the Mormons and the Bible, how the Mormons use the Bible. But of course, it's also very interesting, uh, and I wish you could take just a minute to comment on this question. What were some of the major changes in the Mormon uses of the Bible and the Mormon packaging of the Bible, understanding of the Bible across the history of Mormonism, which is now nearly 200 years old. And so Mormons in the Bible is a much bigger subject than the Joseph Smith period. So could you identify maybe two or three major points in the history of Mormonism where the Bible seemed to take a different significance from what it had had before? Yeah. Good, thank you. Yeah, it is a much bigger topic. Um, within, in the first edition of the book, uh, the most commented on chapter by Mormons, to my surprise, was chapter 5, which had to do with the evolution of how the King James Bible morphed from the, being the common but not official and often challenged version of Joseph Smith and the early Latter-day Saints to evolving into the de facto official version and after Mormons and the Bible was published, um, less than a year after Mormons and the Bible was published, the First Presidency made a statement making it not just de facto but official, official, and they published a letter in the church news and in the ensign. Um, so that's a little bit of a subtle distinction from the common to the official, but it's an important one. Um, and it happened with, uh, in the early days of Mormonism, um, the King James was the inherited dominant version, but there were other versions and new translations being offered by Noah Webster and um, many others quite publicly. Uh, and we know from early Mormon newspapers that the Latter-day Saints were quite aware of other translations um, happening. And um, Joseph was um, always saying with his work, um, I could render this better, but this is good enough for now, or the German translation is the best of all I have found. Um, um, this is wrong, this is wrong, I've added, I've made the kinds of changes that I've su um, suggested here in this little sketch by the thousands in the text. So he was in a kind of a dialogue wrestle with the King James Version uh, and not at all afraid to um, think, seek out other versions and even indulge in old-fashioned study for all of his speculation and all his prophetic utterances. And uh, that went on through, that sentiment went on through the 19th century, but when the RLDS Church, which had charge of the manuscripts of the Joseph Smith translation, published the work, then the LDS Church, which was so, they, the two churches were somewhere between cool and hostile to one another, and so people... LDS leaders began saying we don't need that and they're whispering sometimes um, in public but often in private we don't trust them what have these apostates um, done to the 
manuscript and they won't let us see the manuscripts and things. And so there was a reaction against that which meant a deeper commitment. The King James Version, the old King James is good enough for us. We don't need this reorganite um, thing. And then later, um, new translations of the scriptures occur that are threatening doctrinally interpreted as threatening. So in the early and mid-20th century, you get English translation, the American Standard Translation, and then the revised version in 1952. And that causes a rustle among the Mormons and among Americans uh, generally. Senator McCarthy called the translators of the Revised Standard Version into his Senate hearings and accused them of being communists. Um, some, of the, some of the miracles of Jesus are called mighty works and instead of miracles, and he, he and many thought that that was a dilution of the supernatural. And so some of the saints responded, and that made the um, King James... Um, loyalties um, a little bigger. At the end of the 19th century, by contrast to that, people were writing in John Taylor's era and in Lorenzo Snow's era and in Joseph F. Smith's era. They were, write, they were making fun somewhat of the beautiful literature argument that people made for the King James Bible. It's so beautiful and majestic that it reflects the holy and we should keep to it for its beauty and some Latter-day Saint leaders and people prominent enough to write in the church publications even if they weren't general authorities they said why choose beauty over accuracy why why choose um, this elegant Jacobian language Shakespeare-like language instead of the simple raw, beautiful prose of the fishermen of Galilee. And so they mocked that, but after this other stuff happened and after the Revised Standard Version came out, then they started using the beautiful literature argument more aggressively like the rest of the Protestant world to defend the King James Bible. And so those are examples of shift from the common to the official. And lots of people will drill their eyes about that doesn't matter so much, um, but it matters potentially in, in a number of ways. One is accuracy of the text to the extent that we care about that. Modern scholars you, who translate modern edition, or bring modern editions of the newly translated work into existence have documents, Greek and Hebrew documents, that are older by centuries, and the the whole um, scholarship of textual criticism can come closer to establishing what the original documents looked like than, than the King James folks could have done in the 17th century. But don't we owe to J. Reuben Clark primarily the decision, in effect, to canonize the King James Version for English-speaking? These, these developments that I'm saying have their own weight and momentum in um, some circles, but certainly when, King, uh, when the Revised Standard Version comes out, that one of the things that that triggers is this response by J. Reuben Clark, uh, who published a book that was on most Mormon shelves that had any church books would have President Clark's Why the King James Version. And he was uh, a prodigious researcher for a lay 
person, but he wasn't a scholar of the Bible, and the sort of scholars that he depended on were Victorian scholars, uh, sort of like James Talmadge um, depended on when he wrote James, uh, Jesus the Christ. And, and so his arguments were secondary. They're dependent on others and in a sort of an antique way that weren't really capable of grappling with what the manuscripts actually said. And so that did sort of uh, his forcefulness and his comparative erudition among church officials and uh, the fact that other members of the First Presidency were not in great health and not as forceful. He was sort of at the forefront, and that did serve in effect to further canonize the work. Does your, uh, does your later edition book go into the uh, question of uh, what complications this predicament presents that is, of, in effect, canonizing the English, the King James Version, what complications that presents to Latter-day Saints who live in non-English-speaking countries? Yeah, a little bit. I do talk um, about the new Spanish translation. We're almost to the point, or we are at the point, uh, if we're not, we very soon will be at the point where there's more Spanish and Portuguese-speaking Latter-day Saints than English-speaking, and that disparity seems on a trajectory to increase. And uh, the new trans, uh, Spanish translation took the headings of the chapters, the summary—excuse oh, me—the summary of all the chapters that President McConkie, Elder McConkie, is the author of, and translated them very literally. And they're not just summaries. In every instance, sometimes they're interpretive, like like he'll summarize a certain chapter of Romans by saying, "Man is saved by." works and grace, and uh, that clearly is not what Paul had in mind when he was writing the epistle to the Romans, um, and then that's replicated in the Spanish translation, so it's going that way. The German Latter-day Saints are using a translation that is more modern prose. The Spanish used an earlier um, translation. Sometimes it's explained because the newer one was under copyright and they could do that without costs, but they've also explained it choosing the early Spanish antique, more, more antique translation by saying that like the King James, it reflects the holiness and the majesty of God. And so I do talk about the difficulties there because if you were reading the Koine Greek and you're reading the Gospel of Mark in the language that it came down to us in, Mark is not, unlike Luke, Mark is not elegant Greek. It is, it, he, didn't, he wasn't a great master of Greek, and so it comes across kind of raw and breathless. Like, and then Jesus did this, and then immediately... <laughs> And then immediately he did this, and then he goes over here, it comes across. It's, it's that sort of crude, and it's all the more powerful and fresh. The emphasis is on the good news. Uh, you don't hear Episcopalian king, um, cathedral chimes going off in the background when you read Mark in, in the original Greek. And so we're reading something that sounds majestic and holy, but it's not true to how it was first crafted or how it came down to the first Christians. And in my own worship, I think I love the King James uh, very much, and it does have a lofty sense that even has a aesthetic and spiritual dimension, so I don't think it should be trashed. 
but it does come at a cost and it seems like by instead of using it as the common making it so official and so entrenched then um, their their implications to what we're seeing and Morris is standing up so two last points on that front and then I'll cease and desist um, see how you make me speak like a pseudo attorney <laughs> the, um, the um, relation that we have with the rest of the Christian world one of the arguments for the King James Bible in the mid 20th century is that shift occurred is that this is the common Bible of the of the Protestant world and in our missionary work and conversation with other Christians we need this common bond with them to be effective and it's been more than 20 years since um, the New International Version became the best-selling Bible in America so that arguments um, practicality is retreating not as rapidly as what we might think because the King James is still very popular but language I'm under the impression language itself is changing more rapidly in the age of the internet and with globalization and technologization is that a legal word and so King James English a 17th century British translation of the Bible 50 years from now is going to look more like Beowulf more quickly than Beowulf got for us and so relating to the outside world that way is kind of problematic uh, and, and interpretive <laughs> concepts like the more sure word of prophecy or having one's calling and election made sure or other things that, ha that are dependent on specific King James way of phrasing things took on in Joseph's mind doctrinal concepts. So they've sort of been frozen. If you change translations, then what happens to those concepts? And so that's a kind of a, a dialogue. And then the last point would be, like a lawyer, I snuck in three instead of two. Um, the, the last point I'll make on that, um, Armand, is that I forgot what I was going to say. Maybe spared it. Oh, just that there are, apart from translations, there are so many editions of the Bible that come out as the populace gets less and less biblically literate with every generation that passes and, and that's documentable then different ways of trying to make the Bible appeal to people come out so we have trezillions of editions we have lots of translations but we have trezillions of editions we have Angelina Jolie on one cover and we have the Beatles on another cover and we have the green edition Bible that is all printed on um, perfect ecologically correct paper and instead of the words of Jesus in red everything that deals with nature is in green and we have the busy housewife's Bible and the Bible for baseball players etc by the Trezillions and while it's nice to work at making it relevant and packaging it in a relevant way there's a kind of a tension or trade-off about being effective uh, that way because you make the Bible sort of trendy and some of the translations or paraphrases are very cheesy sorts of things that 
that sort of lose religious or sacred power, at least arguably. So there's a lot of implications to which way we go, but we seem to be at a point because of the rapid change of language and internationalization and some of the international saints using modern translations and English and Spanish not, that there's these tectonic plates that are kind of pushing against each other and in a generation or two you would think something has to give and we have to, a prophet has to decide we'll, we'll choose a different translation and obviously the concern is if you do that what about the Book of Mormon and can a prophet take license to recast the Book of Mormon in more modern language if 22nd century saints find it strange and everybody looks at the Latter-day Saints like textual Amish or Hutterites and how that relate culturally to the world. Sorry. Thanks well, for letting me be with you. You've been listening to the Dialogue Journal podcast series. We'd like to thank our guests today. For more Dialogue podcasts or to comment on this one, please visit dialoguejournal.com. Thank you.